Good morning and welcome to Moderna's third quarter earnings call. At this time, all participants in listen-only mode. Following the formal remarks, we'll open the call up for your questions. Please be advised that the call is being recorded. At this time, I'd like to turn the call over to Lavina Taglor, Head, Investor Relations at Moderna. Please go ahead, ma'am. Thank you, Operator. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's call to discuss Moderna's third quarter 2021 financial results and business updates. You can access the press release we issued this morning as well as the slides that we'll be reviewing by going to the investor section of our website. On today's call are Stefan Bansell, our Chief Executive Officer, David Moline, our Chief Financial Officer, Stephen Hogue, our President, and Paul Burton, our Chief Medical Officer. Before we begin, please note that this conference call will include forward-looking statements made pursuant to the safe harbor provisions of the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Please see slide two of the accompanying presentation and our SEC filings for important risk factors that could cause our actual performance and results to differ materially from those expressed or implied in these forward-looking statements. On slide three, please see the important indication and safety information from our COVID-19 vaccine, which has been authorized for emergency use in the United States and many other countries around the world. I will now turn the call over to Stefan. Thank you, Lavina. Good morning, or good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our Q3 2021 conference call. Today, I will start by a quick business review of the quarter before David presents the key financials. Paul will then walk you through some real-world evidence updates, and Stephen will provide a clinical development update. I will then come back to close to share some thoughts about where we are heading. Let's start on slide five with a holistic pipeline update. First, respiratory vaccines. We are pleased to have filed the BLA for COVID-19 vaccines to FDA and have now received a priority review designation. We received our first full approval for spikebacks in Canada. We received EUA from the FDA for the 50 microgram booster and mix and match has been authorized. We also received authorization for boosters from other major geographies, EMA, UK, and so on. We were informed recently that FDA may take until January 2022 to review the EUA request for 12 to 17 years of age. Turning now to flu, mRNA-1010 is fully enrolled for the phase one and we expect human data soon now. For RSV, mRNA-1345, after very positive data in the phase one, with high neutralizing antibody levels after one dose, our teams are finalizing the preparation of a phase two free in older adults. This study should start soon. We also announced our development candidate for COVID booster plus flu booster in a single dose, mRNA-1073, which we anticipate will be in the clinic soon. Let me now turn to vaccine against latent viruses. As many of you know, latent viruses are a major cause of health problems. Latent viruses are mainly made of DNA viruses, and once a human is infected by a latent virus, that virus will stay in the body. You are familiar with some latent viruses like HIV and HPV. There are many other that hurt humans. As a company, we are committed to developing a portfolio of first-in-class vaccines and therapeutics against these latent viruses. Our first programs are CMV vaccine, EPV vaccine, 
and EBV therapeutic vaccine. We have also partnered to work on two HIV vaccines. Last week marked a big milestone for Moderna. We started losing in the clinic the first participants of our phase three pivotal registration study for CMV vaccine mRNA1647. This marks the second phase three study that the company has started and brings us one step closer to getting another important vaccine to millions of people around the world. Our EBV vaccine, mRNA1189, should start dosing for its phase one very soon. And our new development candidate, an EBV therapeutic vaccine, mRNA1195, is moving toward the clinic. Let me now turn to therapeutics. Our personalized cancer vaccine is in phase two, head-to-head study with Ketudra, monotherapy is fully enrolled, and we expect data in the back end of 2022. Our rare genetic programs continue to progress well in the clinic. PA has its phase one dose cohort fully enrolled. MMA is losing patients in its phase one. GSD1A has an open IND and has received often drug designation by FDA. So as you can see, we have three rare genetic disease programs in the clinic or soon to be in the clinic. So we look forward to sharing clinical data in the coming months. We are very proud to have found a way to get Cleveland-Niger type 1 or CN1 to patients through a donation of our IP and the assets to the Institute for Life-Changing Medicines. CN1 disease is an ultra-rare disease with very few patients afflicted around the world. For ultra-rare disease, just the cost of clinical development would result in a very high price for a few patients around the world that could benefit. This model is not one that we support. So instead of developing a drug and charging a very high price, we decided to give the drug away and innovate through a creative partnership. We provide the drug to the institute. We pay for clinical trial material. The institute pays for the clinical trial cost. If the drug is approved, we'll provide the medicines to the kids and the families for free and we will not charge any royalty or milestone to the Institute. We believe this is the right thing to do to continue to contribute to society for ultra-rare disease where our mRNA platform can help. One of the important news item announced today is the introduction of a new modality to our existing six modalities. We are very pleased to announce that Vertex and Moderna are now in GLP talk studies for the cystic fibrosis program, VXC522. This marks our first inhaled pulmonary therapeutics program. I would like to congratulate and thank our scientific team, as well as the Vertex team, for having been able to develop a novel lipid formulation to allow inhaled pulmonary delivery. This is really exciting for patients. As we communicated previously, in addition to doing therapeutics using mRNA coding for human proteins, like the ones I just described, we want to use our mRNA plus lipid technologies to develop therapeutics using mRNA coding for gene editing enzymes. We are pleased to announce our first partnership in that field. We announced earlier this week that we entered into a licensing collaboration with Metagenomy, based in California, to use their next generation gene editing enzymes. We believe that their technology, coupled with our mRNA plus lipid technologies and our manufacturing infrastructure, will produce some exciting new medicine to take into the clinic. I am very pleased with the progress of the company. We are increasing depth in vaccines 
and at the same time increasing breadth of application with our seventh modality in the lung and gene editing. On slide six, you will find financial highlights. For Q3, we reported revenue of around $5 billion, enabled by delivering 208 million doses of our COVID-19 vaccine, net income of $3.3 billion. Our cash and cash equivalents position was $15 billion at the end of September. Since the end of the quarter, we have been working to gain better visibility into those variables that will impact our full year results. And we have much better visibility today than we did a month ago. For fiscal year 2021, we are updating the range of doses we plan to deliver to 700 to 800 million doses. The key variables of this update volume range are, first, longer lead time for exports to countries outside the U.S. and for international shipments in general. In Q3, we shipped more deliveries to new international markets and expect Q4 to also have more international deliveries. As we deliver to these countries for the first time, we expect the process to become more routine and delivery time to shorter. However, some Q4 deliveries may still move to early 2022 as a result. Second, in Q3, we have expanded our field finish capacity with our manufacturing partners, which had a temporary impact on our shipment. That work is complete now, and we should see a positive impact from this expansion very soon. Third, the bottleneck of production has moved down the manufacturing line to product release. We added additional resources, skilled personnel, to the release end of the manufacturing line, and we expect to increase the weekly number of doses released. We believe resolution of these factors put us in a good position heading into Q4 and 2022. Now if I turn to revenue for 21, the updated revenue range for 2021 is 15 billion to 18 billion. This range reflects updated delivery schedule with fewer doses delivered in 2021, as some doses are pushed into 2022, and also the pricing impact of prioritization delivery to COVAX and African Union that have a lower tiered pricing. On slide seven, let me start by summarizing the scale-up operational challenges that the team had to work through as we scale from making less than 100,000 doses in 2029 to hundreds of millions of doses in 2021. Q1 scale-up challenges were around drug substance, making mRNA in lipid. Q2 scale-up challenges were around drug products and ensuring we could fill enough files. In the first half of the year, we made great progress in these challenges, as you can see from the numbers on the right. We now have 901 million doses of drug substance that have been formulated and then in large volume bags of mRNA product. And we have 770 million doses of drug products already in bags. Q3 scale-up challenges were around product release as our supply chain became more complex with increased deliveries to many countries around the world. At the beginning of the year, we supplied just a few large countries. As mentioned before, we are working through these challenges and as November 3rd, we have shipped 566 million doses around the world. With the progress here to date, we expect to be able to deliver 700 to 800 million doses for a full year 2021. We were pleased to be named last week for the seventh year in a row as one of the top 20 biotech and pharmaceutical companies in the world by science. We continue to invest in science and the culture of our team. We aim at building the best mRNA science in the world and the culture of boldness collaboration, curiosity, and relentlessness. 
On slide nine, you will find our usual summary slide, which describes some of the key high-level attributes of the company as of today. Now, let me turn over to David. Okay, thank you, Stefan. We're providing today the analysis of actual 2021 third quarter results, along with an updated view of key drivers of financial performance going forward. Turning now to slide 11, starting with an overview of our sales performance before commenting more broadly on our financial results. Total product sales in the third quarter were $4.8 billion, representing 208 million doses delivered to our customers. This compares to sales of $4.2 billion and $199 million doses in Q2, and sales of $1.7 billion and $102 million doses in Q1 of this year. Sales to the U.S. government were $1.2 billion in the third quarter, reflecting 73 million doses delivered, compared to $2.1 billion and 126 million doses in Q2, and sales of $1.4 billion and 88 million doses in Q1. Sales to the rest of the world were $3.6 billion in the third quarter, reflecting 136 million doses delivered, compared to sales of 2.1 billion and 73 million doses in Q2 and 0.4 billion of sales and 14 million doses in Q1. This reflects a significant manufacturing ramp up outside the US over the last two quarters. The relatively modest increase of delivered doses in Q3 versus Q2 was driven by the factors that Stefan just explained. We continue to scale our production network and are working to achieve an increased quarter-over-quarter improvement starting in Q4. Turning to slide 12, the transformation of Moderna from an R&D-focused biotech to a commercial company continues to be very apparent when reviewing our financial results. The comparison of the third quarter of 2021 to prior year is not meaningful due to our significant growth which is why I will primarily focus on the quarter-over-quarter comparison relative to Q2 on this slide. Total revenue was $5 billion in the third quarter of 2021, compared to $4.4 billion in the second quarter and $0.2 billion in the prior year period. The increase of total revenue is driven by the sale of the company's COVID-19 vaccine. Product sales in Q3 were $4.8 billion compared to $4.2 billion in the second quarter, an increase of 15%. Cost of sales was $722 million, or 15% of the company's product sales in the third quarter, compared to $750 million, or 18% of product sales in the second quarter. The quarter-over-quarter percentage improvement is driven by higher average selling price as a result of shifts in our customer mix and, to a smaller extent, by favorable manufacturing cost. Research and development expenses were $521 million in the third quarter, up from $421 million in Q2 and $344 million in the same period in 2020. The higher spend versus prior quarter and prior year was driven by increased COVID-19 vaccine clinical development activities, including our announced efforts around booster, variant-specific, and multivalent vaccine candidates. 
headcount increases, as well as external costs to support a growing and maturing development pipeline beyond the COVID-19 vaccine activities also contributed to the expense increase. Selling general and administrative expenses were $168 million for Q3, compared to $121 million in the prior quarter and $48 million for the same period in the prior year. The growth in spending was driven by the commercialization of our COVID-19 vaccine globally, with continued investments in personnel and outside services in support of the accelerated company build-out. Provision for income taxes was $219 million in the third quarter, following $283 million in Q2 and an insignificant amount in the prior year. Our effective tax rate for the third quarter was 6%. Let me, let me remind you of the fact that we had a net operating loss carry forward of $2.3 billion at the end of 2020. This year, we started to release the valuation allowance against the related deferred tax assets, which results in an estimated non-recurring full-year benefit to our effective tax rates of about five percentage points. Our Q3 effective tax rate was lower than the U.S. statutory rate, primarily due to the just-described benefit related to the release of the valuation allowance, the foreign-derived intangible income deduction, and an excess tax deduction related to stock-based compensation. This last item drove the quarter-over-quarter reduction due to the increase in our share price in Q3 versus Q2. We recorded net income of $3.3 billion in Q3 compared to $2.8 billion in Q2, an increase of 20%. This compares to a loss of $0.2 billion in Q3 of last year. Diluted earnings per share for Q3 2021 were $7.70. Turning now to year-to-date financial results compared to prior year on slide 13. Total revenue was $11.3 billion for the first nine months of this year, compared to $0.2 billion for the same period in 2020. The significant growth was driven by the sales of 510 million doses of the company's COVID-19 vaccine. Grant revenue of $473 million in the first nine months of 2021, an increase of $286 million compared to the prior year, was primarily driven by increases in revenue from BARDA related to the company's COVID-19 vaccine development. Cost of sales was $1.7 billion, or 16% of the company's product sales, for the year-to-date period as of September 30th, including third-party royalties of $400 million. A portion of the inventory costs associated with this year's product sales was expensed as pre-launch inventory cost in 2020. If inventory sold for the first nine months of this year was valued at cost, our cost of sales for the period would have been 17% of the product sales. Research and development expenses were $1.3 billion for the nine months ended September 30th of this year, compared to $0.6 billion for the same period in 2020. The growth in spending in 2021 was mainly due to increase in clinical trial expenses and to a lesser extent 
personnel-related costs, manufacturing expenses, and consulting and outside services, primarily driven by increased mRNA-1273 clinical development activities. Selling general and administrative expenses were $0.4 billion for the first nine months of this year, compared to $0.1 billion for the same period in 2020. The growth in spending in 2021 was mainly due to increases in consulting and outside services, personnel-related costs, and marketing expenses, primarily attributable to the company's COVID-19 vaccine commercialization-related activities and increased headcount. For the nine months ended September 30th, we recorded a provision for income taxes of $541 million compared to insignificant amounts in the same period in 2020. Our effective tax rate for the first nine months of this year was 7%. It was lower than the U.S. statutory rate, primarily due to non-recurring benefits related to the release of the valuation allowance, the ongoing benefit of the foreign-derived intangible income deduction, as well as a discrete item for excess tax deductions related to stock-based compensation. Net income was $7.3 billion for the nine months ended September 30th of this year, compared to a net loss of $0.5 billion for the same period in 2020. Diluted earnings per share were $17 for the first nine months of 2021. Turning to cash and selected cash flow information on slide 14. We ended Q3 2021 with cash and investments of $15.3 billion compared to $12.2 billion at the end of Q2. The increase is driven by our commercial sales and additional customer deposits received in the third quarter for future purchases of our COVID-19 vaccine. Net cash provided by operating activities was $3.3 billion in Q3 after $4.1 billion in Q2. The quarter-over-quarter reduction is driven by a lower amount of cash deposits for future product supply received in Q3 compared to Q2. On a year-to-date basis, net cash provided by operating activities was $10.3 billion compared to $0.8 billion in the prior year. Cash used for purchases of property and equipment was $164 million for the nine months ended September 30th, compared to $44 million for the same period in 2020, reflecting continuous investments in our manufacturing infrastructure. Now turning to slide 15. Let me briefly expand further on our cash and investment position and the net balance of cash deposits for future product supply as this is an important point when modeling future cash flows. The cash and investment balance reported as of September 30th was $15.3 billion, up from $12.2 billion as of June 30th. The increase is driven by our commercial activities, including cash receipts from product sales and customer deposits for future product supply. The net balance of cash deposits for future product supply was $6.7 billion at the end of Q3, at a similar level to the balance in Q2 of this year. Turning now to the 2021 updated financial framework on slide 16. 
For the full year 2021, we expect a product sales range of 15 to 18 billion. We now expect to be able to deliver 7 to 800 million doses at the 100 microgram dose level to our customers. This compares to the prior outlook of 800 to a billion doses. Our total cost of sales includes the cost of goods manufactured, third-party royalties, as well as logistics and warehousing costs. Given the favorability we have observed in the year-to-date period, we now expect total cost of sales as a percent of product sales between 16 to 17% for the full year 2021. This compares to our previous outlook of 18 to 20% of product sales. For 2022, we currently expect the cost of sales ratio to exceed 20%, driven by customer mix and multiple presentation types. On the R&D and SG&A expense side, we continue to plan for an increase on a quarter-over-quarter basis and expect this trend to continue for the remainder of 2021 and beyond. Driven by a maturing development portfolio, and the scale-up of our commercial activities. Based on further increased visibility of the utilization of our accumulated net operating loss carry-forward, expected global sales mix, and the mentioned discrete benefits in the first nine months of this year, we now expect our all-in 2021 tax rate to be in the high single-digit range. This compares to our previous forecast of approximately 10%. Since we won't have a material benefit from our valuation allowance in future years, we expect our reported 2022 effective tax rate will increase relative to our 2021 rate. It's also too early to further comment on impacts from a potential tax reform. Finally, regarding capital investments, we are now planning for approximately $0.4 billion of capital investment to fall into the 2021 calendar year compared to our previous range of 450 to 550 million. We are strongly committed to a further build-out of our manufacturing and general company infrastructure and hence predict capital investment in 2022 will be meaningfully above 2021 levels. This concludes my remarks concerning the financial performance, and I now turn the call over to Paul Burton. Thank you, David, and good morning, good afternoon, everyone. With more than 150 million people worldwide now having received two doses of our vaccine, we are humbled to be able to see the positive impact it is having on people's lives around the world. We are reminded of the fact that almost 250 million people have been infected with COVID-19 globally, and 5 million people have lost their lives. Our profound thanks, as always, go out to those on the front lines, working tirelessly to keep us safe in this ongoing fight. Through numerous independent studies, time and time again, we see consistent findings showing that mRNA-1273 is highly effective in saving lives, reducing hospitalizations, and reducing the risk of COVID-19 infection. I will highlight a few of these independently conducted studies uh, this morning. In slide 18, I will begin with some of the data from the United States government. These data come from the CDC and show through September of this year, 
the difference in COVID-19 cases between fully vaccinated and unvaccinated populations. An unvaccinated person has an 11-fold greater risk of dying from COVID-19, underscoring the importance that getting vaccinated plays in our protection and ending this pandemic. The data show that vaccination with mRNA-1273 provides the greatest protection, not only against COVID-19 infection, but also death due to COVID-19. In fact, even during the surge of the Delta virus variant during the summer months this year, Moderna's vaccine had the lowest reported deaths associated with breakthrough infection, as these CDC data demonstrate. Approximately 160 million doses of the Moderna vaccine have been administered in the United States. And in the next slide, I want to show you some further government-generated data in a country where the Moderna vaccine has also had extensive use, and that country is Switzerland. You can see here exposure data on the left. Approximately 3.6 million people have been fully vaccinated with the Moderna vaccine, and 1.9 million people have been fully vaccinated with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. These government-generated data from the Federal Office of Public Health in Switzerland, again, are clear and show that vaccination with the Moderna vaccine is highly effective at reducing infections, hospitalizations, and deaths due to COVID-19 infection. For every 1 million people vaccinated, use of mRNA-1273 would be expected to result in 643 fewer COVID-19 breakthrough infections, 78 hospitalizations, and 38 fewer deaths. Next, in slide 20, are data from two other recent independent studies that build on the results I just showed you from Switzerland. The first study on the left side of this slide followed 38 million vaccinated people in the United States, Iceland, and South Korea. And again, found that those people vaccinated with mRNA-1273 were at 53% reduced risk of a COVID-19 infection and 33% reduced risk of a COVID-19 hospitalization compared to those vaccinated with the alternate mRNA vaccine. The data on the right hand of the slide are from a recent publication by Nordstrom and colleagues in Sweden and Norway, showing that mRNA-1273 delivered 87% vaccine effectiveness during a time of high Delta variant circulation in those countries. The data I've shared so far are all from the general population. Let me turn now to the effectiveness of the Moderna vaccine in particularly vulnerable populations, the immunocompromised. These data were published just two days ago, again, by the United States CDC Vision Network and examine vaccine effectiveness at preventing COVID-19 hospitalization, which is so critically important, in individuals with a variety of immunocompromised medical conditions. 
between January and September of this year. As the authors of this study note, with the exception of those individuals with rheumatic disorders, vaccine effectiveness point estimates were generally higher for the Moderna vaccine than for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. And the difference in effectiveness in these hard-to-immunize populations is shown in the column on the right. I want to turn now to the topic of myocarditis and to put it in the context of the clinical benefits of vaccination that I've just described with mRNA-1273. It is important to recognize that the cases of myocarditis reported to occur following mRNA vaccination are rare, generally mild, typically respond to conservative treatment, and are self-limiting. Health authorities have reviewed many data sets and the US CDC and WHO have concluded that there is a risk of myocarditis and pericarditis after receiving any mRNA vaccine. The WHO's Advisory Committee on Vaccine Safety notes that myocarditis can occur following SARS-CoV-2 infection or COVID-19 disease and that mRNA vaccines have a clear benefit in preventing hospitalization and death from COVID-19. Analyses from our global safety database show that the events of myocarditis are very rare. Overall, we observe 9.5 cases of myocarditis per million vaccinated individuals, compared to an expected rate of 21 cases per million individuals. Now, in common with other reports of mRNA vaccines in individuals aged 18 to 24, we see an increased rate of myocarditis of 40 cases versus 17 expected cases per million individuals. These data from our own safety database are consistent with the findings from safety databases evaluated by the CDC and other global health authorities. And the link to the CDC analysis is provided on the slide below. mRNA-1273 has been authorized for use in adolescents aged 12 to 18 in multiple countries around the world. Moderna's global safety database has information on an estimated 1.5 million of them, providing us an opportunity to look at the rate of myocarditis in those individuals. And those data are shown in this table. We see the small, absolute, well-described risk of increased myocarditis rates in males aged 18 to 24 that I just described to you. But we do not see an increased risk in adolescents, neither in boys nor in girls. These data are reassuring and important as we continue to offer mRNA-1273 to adults, adolescents, and as we file for authorization in children. So in summary, the data I've shared with you today from independent government reports in the United States and in Switzerland, countries with high vaccination rates of Moderna's vaccine, show that mRNA-1273 is associated with lowest breakthrough infections, hospitalizations, and deaths due to COVID-19. 
Other independent studies in millions of individuals continue to show that mRNA-1273 is highly effective in reducing the risk of breakthrough COVID-19, as well as hospitalizations and death. And importantly, this is also true in those vulnerable and hard to vaccinate immunocompromised patient populations. Moderna's global safety database of 151 million vaccinated individuals shows a rate of myocarditis in males aged 18 to 24 that is consistent with analyses by CDC and others. Moderna's global safety database does not show an increased risk of myocarditis in 1.5 million individuals below the age of 18 and vaccinated with Spikevax. So these, this concludes my quick overview of some recent analyses of mRNA-1273 effectiveness data and review of data from our Global Safety Database. And I will now turn the call over to Stephen. Thank you, Paul, and good morning or good afternoon, everyone. Today, I'll review the progress we've made across our vaccines and therapeutics pipeline. Let me start with our COVID-19 vaccine, mRNA-1273, for adults ages 18 and above, where there are a number of important regulatory updates. First, we've announced that the FDA granted priority review to Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine, BLA. In October, we also received an EUA from the FDA and the European Commission's approval for a booster dose of the, our COVID-19 vaccine at the 50 microgram dose level for the adult cohort ages 18 and above. Turning to the adolescent and pediatric settings, as a reminder, there are two clinical trials for each of these groups. Teen Cove is our study in the adolescent population, 12 to 17 year olds, and Kid Cove is the study in the pediatric population age 11 and younger. For the adolescent population, 12 to 17 years old, our vaccine is authorized in a number of countries worldwide, including the United Kingdom, the European Union, Canada, Switzerland, Japan, Thailand, Taiwan, Saudi Arabia, and Argentina, to name a few. We've submitted data from our Kitteen Cove study to the FDA in the United States, as well as to other countries. We were recently notified by the FDA that the agency will require additional time to evaluate our proposed amendment due to recent analysis of the risk of myocarditis after vaccination in some populations. The agency expects this evaluation may extend until January 2022. As Paul noted, Moderna's global safety database includes an estimated 1.5 million adolescents who've received the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine, most outside of the United States. And to date, we have not observed a rate of myocarditis from those younger than 18 years in our safety database that points to an increased risk of myocarditis in that population. We continue to believe the benefits of vaccination significantly outweigh the risks. In the pediatric setting, our study known as KidCove is ongoing and is focused in three age groups, a group with children six to 11 years of age, a group of two to less than six, and a group of children six months to less than two. The trial consists of a dose escalation phase for each group followed by an expansion phase once the dose has been selected. Last week, we shared positive top-line data from the oldest of the age groups in Kid Cove, the 6- to 11-year-old cohort, showing that two 50-microgram doses of mRNA-1273 were generally well-tolerated and that the primary immunogenicity endpoints were met. 
We will submit our results soon to the EMA and other global regulatory agencies. For the other two age groups in Kid Cove, the two to less than six years old group and the six month to less than two year old group, our dose selection studies are ongoing. On the next slide, let me share with you some of the data we have in children ages six to less than 12 years of age. This data is after dose one, as we are waiting for additional follow-up time to share the post-dose two data. As a reminder, the study was randomized two to one for vaccine versus placebo. Based on the case definition of COVID-19 that we used in the phase three adult study, the observed interim vaccine efficacy was 100% in this analysis, starting two weeks after the first dose and using that case definition. Vaccine efficacy against SARS-CoV-2 infection was also high at 80%, and vaccine efficacy against symptom asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection was 65%, both endpoints that we think are incredibly important as we seek to end the pandemic. Turning now to our booster and next-generation COVID-19 vaccine programs on slide 28, as a reminder, we are evaluating multiple COVID-19 vaccines as potential boosters to provide the broadest range of countermeasures to the virus as it continues to evolve. We were granted EUA for the 50 microgram dose of our current vaccine as a booster, as mentioned previously. And we are currently evaluating two variant-specific vaccines and two multivalent vaccine candidates, which are combinations of different variants of concern in an effort to stay ahead of the evolving virus. In addition, we're also evaluating mRNA-1283 as a next-generation refrigerator-stable vaccine, which is in a phase one study. The interim analysis of that phase one data has been completed at three different dose levels and indicates that a lower dose of mRNA-1283 can achieve similar neutralizing antibody responses as a primary, in primary series, as our authorized vaccine, mRNA-1273. mRNA-1283 also had an acceptable safety and tolerability profile, and we're moving forward towards a phase two booster study for that candidate. This will also evaluate even lower doses of mRNA-1283, given the strong boosting performance seen in phase one. While the start of our booster strategy in late while the start of our booster strategy in late January of this year was in response to the threat of newly identified variants at that time, our booster strategy has continued to evolve as the pandemic unfolds. Slide 29 is a slide we shared at our Vaccines Day in April of this year. At the time, the graph on the left was illustrative of our view of the likely path for the pandemic, based on our perspective on respiratory virus evolution and epidemiology, including prior coronavirus pandemics. Today, it's becoming clear that the SARS-CoV-2 virus is following the footsteps of other respiratory viruses and is on its way to becoming a seasonal epidemic endemic threat. So where are we now? With Delta and the potential for other variants, the winter of 2021-2022 still looks to be a time of moderating but persistent variant epidemic waves. Infection and reinfection continue to cause morbidity and mortality during this phase but hopefully in fewer people. The focus will remain on suppressing the rate of viral evolution and emergence. Primary vaccination is critical, but given the high rate of background transmission, booster vaccines will also be important in all countries. Looking ahead, we expect 2022 
will be the beginning of the seasonal endemic phase. Reinfections in individuals who are at high risk, including older adults, the immune compromised, or healthy adults with more rapidly waning immunity due to under-vaccination with potentially less effective vaccines, will be at the greatest risk for severe outcomes. As with the recent Delta wave, this will include some risk of hospitalization and unfortunately some risk of death, as well as social disruption. We believe this will become the primary population for whom seasonal boosting will provide a significant and enduring benefit. In summary, as we described earlier this year, we believe SARS-CoV-2 is following a familiar path that will ultimately become a seasonal threat to a large population of higher risk adults. Perhaps the biggest unknown in the near term is the extent to which further viral evolution in the coming Northern Hemisphere winter and Southern Hemisphere winter in 2022 will create fertile ground for new, newly transmissible and immune-evading variants to emerge. If so, rapid boosting may become necessary. We will need to remain vigilant throughout this time as we fight the pandemic, and we are ready to advance updated boosters rapidly if they become needed. Now, moving from COVID on slide, onto slide 30, we announced in September that the phase one portion of our quadrivalent seasonal flu vaccine, mRNA-1010, is fully enrolled, and we look forward to sharing data from that trial and moving to phase two soon. We also announced positive phase one interim data from our RSV vaccine in older adults in September, and we plan to start a pivotal phase two, three RSV vaccine trial before the end of 2021. Separately, the pediatric RSV program continues to move forward with cohorts enrolling well in our phase one study. Our HMPV PIV3 study in pediatrics is also currently enrolling in toddlers. We were very excited to announce last week that our phase three CMV vaccine trial has dosed its first participants. The start of the phase three trial, CMV, CM Victory, is an important step in evaluating our CMV vaccine against congenital CMV. As a reminder, CMV is the number one cause of birth defects in the United States, and we are evaluating the safety and efficacy of mRNA 1647 in women ages 16 to 40 at the 100 microgram dose level. The trial is starting in the U.S. and will include approximately 150 sites globally, and will enroll on approximately 6,900 women of childbearing age. Importantly, inclusion criteria of the trial includes women at high risk of CMV exposure through direct exposure in the home, socially or occupationally, to children under five years of age. Diversity in our clinical trials is also extremely important to us, and we are proud to continue our commitment from last year on clinical trial diversity. We believe setting targets and measuring ourselves against them remains one of the most important ways we can work to address the healthcare inequity in clinical research. For the CM Victory Phase Three study, our goal is to have 42% of the trial participants in the United States come from communities of color, many of which are disproportionately impacted by the CMV virus. Moving on from vaccines, this slide highlights our mRNA therapeutics pipeline. At R&D Day, we described how our modalities and therapeutic areas overlap. In oncology, our PCV Phase II trial is now fully enrolled, and we expect a readout for that as early as the fourth quarter of next year. Separately, an expansion cohort in head and neck cancer in, phase, in our Phase I trial is ongoing. We also have Phase I trials ongoing for our KRAS vaccine, which is partnered with Merck, 
the triplet program, and the IL-12 intratumoral program, which is partnered with AstraZeneca. In cardiovascular, our VEGF program is also partnered with AstraZeneca, has completed the enrollment of a low-dose cohort in its phase two study, and AZ will be providing updates at a presentation of the data at the American Heart Association meeting in two weeks. Within autoimmune, our IL-2 program is in a phase one trial and dosing. And within rare diseases, our PA and MMA trials are ongoing in phase one, and our GSD-1A program has an open IND and is expected to start a phase one study soon. I'm also very excited to announce that our first cystic fibrosis program has moved into preclinical development with IND and AMBLING studies now underway. We and our partners at Vertex are pleased to announce that development candidate, VXC522. This program marks our first program in a brand new modality, inhaled therapeutics. And as a reminder, a Moderna modality encompasses, encompasses a new method for utilizing our proprietary lipid nanoparticle technologies and mRNA technologies to bring forward medicines. Now, double-clicking for a moment on the CF programs in research, recall that we have two partnerships with Vertex. Our first collaboration targets the CFTR protein and trying to produce it using mRNA and LMP technologies. This is where we are advancing our candidate, VXC522. We also have a collaboration with Vertex using mRNA for gene editing and gene therapy. Both collaborations are focused on treating the 10% of CF patients with disease that unfortunately is not addressable with current CFTR modulators. For this 10% of the CF population, alternative approaches are absolutely necessary. And, and the exciting update today, as I said a moment ago, is that we're announcing the first development candidate to move into development from that collaboration, described on the left-hand side of this slide. In this collaboration, we're delivering messenger RNA that encodes for CFTR protein that is missing or non-functional in patients who suffer from cystic fibrosis. We plan to target that 10% that I mentioned a moment ago. We've been working incredibly hard with Vertex to advance a candidate, and we are very excited that that has now moved into IND-enabling studies. As Vertex announced recently, they expect to submit an IND in 2022, paving the path for clinical studies in these patients. And to close, I'd like to just highlight our pipeline on the following three slides, starting on slide 35, which includes our respiratory vaccines in development. Slide 36 summarizes our large portfolio of latent virus vaccines and vaccines against other viruses. And on slide 37, you'll see the extensive mRNA therapeutics pipeline that we have in development. With that, I'll hand it back to Stefan to close. Thank you, Stephen. Slide 39 is from our September 9th R&D day and summarizes the product franchise we focus on at Moderna. Priority number one is our pan-respiratory annual booster franchise. Priority number two is our first-in-class vaccines for latent viruses. Priority number three is our therapeutics based on mRNA-encoded proteins. And priority number four is our therapeutics based on mRNA-encoded gene-editing enzymes. As we have said for several quarters now, SARS-CoV-2 is here to stay and will evolve from a pandemic to endemic setting. We believe that 2022 will see pandemic in low-income countries throughout the year, but that high-income countries, the year will be of two halves, pandemic priming for children and boosting for adults with an endemic boosting campaign in the fall of 22. On slide 42, you can see the revenue drivers that we anticipate will play out in 2022. We believe there are three components that will drive our COVID-19 vaccine revenues for next year. 
First, signed APAs. We have already signed around $17 billion of advanced purchase agreements, or APAs, for delivery in 2022. Second, APA options. There are up to $3 billion of APAs that are in options. Some options have been converted in Q3 from options to firm order. Third, the fall of 22 commercial market. We also believe that the fall of 22, assuming a BLA is granted for boosters, would grab a commercial booster market of up to $2 billion. So, in total, at this point, we believe that 2022 revenues could be between $17 billion and $22 billion. We, of course, continue to have discussions for 2022 APAs with governments and international organizations, including COVAX, the Pan American Health Organization, or PAHO, and the African Union. For this pan respiratory franchise, our goal is to evolve the COVID-19 vaccine primary series into fall of 21 boosters, which is happening as we speak, and then fall of 22 boosters, and then add to a COVID booster a flu booster in a single dose, and then add to COVID and flu an RSV booster in a single dose. Our flu vaccine human data should be out soon, and the team is already preparing the phase two free for flu. And RSV is moving fast to phase two free. If one looks at the health damage of latent viruses, it is profound. EBV is a major cause of infectious mononucleosis. EBV has been reported to increase risk of multiple sclerosis. EBV is associated with certain cancers and autoimmune diseases. And EBV is associated with higher risk of long COVID. CMV is associated with being the leading cause of birth defects. CMV is a major driver of immune dysfunctions with aging. CMV is associated with cardiovascular diseases. CMV is associated with cancer and cognitive impairments. For now, our focus is CMV, EBV, and HIV. But we are developing in the labs vaccines against other latent viruses which hurt human health. Our goal is to eliminate these viruses. As we discussed earlier, several cancer and rare genetic programs are in the clinic and should provide clinical readouts soon. On November 15, AD will present phase two data in patients from the VEGF program at the American Heart Association. And we are pleased to announce a new modality with health preliminary therapeutics. Modern Academics is our effort to expand the use of our platform to create more innovative drugs to help patients. Our strategy is to invest internally under the leadership of Dr. Eric Wang with a dedicated team and to set up licenses agreements with next generation generating companies. The Metagenomy Partnership is a first step in that direction. The strategic path of a company is very clear and exciting. We want to stop people getting hospitalized from a respiratory infection. We won't stop until this goal is achieved. We want to stop or follow human beings from suffering from these latent viruses. We want to bring to market uh, mRNA-encoded protein therapeutics in oncology, cardiology, genetic disease, and autoimmune. We want to bring therapeutics using gene editing enzymes. We believe Moderna could become the most impactful drug company in the world. As we scale, we realized that we needed to go further in setting the right framework for our team to understand what has made Moderna, Moderna. So we worked through Q2 and Q3 to articulate our mindset how we behave and make decisions at Moderna. There is more information on our website and we'll be happy to spend time with those of you who want to learn more about them. Let me just summarize them at a high level. 
At Moderna, we act with urgency. Action today compounds the life saved tomorrow. We pursue options in parallel to make the best choice later. We accept risk as the only path to impact. We obsess over learning. We don't have to be the smartest. We have to learn the fastest. We pivot fearlessly in the face of new data. We question convention because proven models don't always fuel the future. We push past possible. We behave like owners. The solutions we are building go beyond any job description. We act with dynamic range, driving strategy and execution at the same time and at every step of the way. We remove viscosity to encourage collective action. We prioritize a platform over any single product. We digitalize everything possible using the power of digital information to maximize our impact on patients. But we want to be the most impactful drug company in the world. We care deeply about doing it the right way. It means being a great company to work for, as exemplified by our seventh consecutive year ranked as the best company to work for by science. But it also means building a company that is responsible and minimizing our impact on the planet. We are proud to have announced earlier this week that we will work to achieve net zero carbon emission for operations globally by 2030. I want to thank the Moderna team for their commitment to our mission and their relentless work to build the best version of Moderna over the next 20 years. Before we jump into Q&As, we wanted to share the dates of our annual investor event for 2022, Vaccine Day on March 24th, Science Day on May 17th, and R&D Day on September 8th. Operator will not be happy to take any questions. Thank you. Participants, to ask a question, you need to press star 1 on your telephone keypad. To withdraw your question, press the pound key. Our first question comes from the line of Salvin Richter from Goldman Sachs. Your line is open. Good morning. Thanks for taking my question. Um, for 2022, can you walk through the supply aspects? Um, are you still guiding to up to 3 billion doses here? And, and can you also speak to demand dynamics? Is there upside to the guidance that you've, saw, you've, you've commented on today per future signed APAs? And then secondly, you know, how confident are you that you can fix the, these supply issues and over what time frame? Great, Savin. So let me take those, those, those different questions. Uh, let me start with the short term. Yes, we really believe we can uh, fix those short term supply issues. As I, as I try to explain in my remarks, uh, those are what I would qualify as teething problems of scaling up so fast. You know, in Q1, it was all about making enough drug substance, and we are literally, you know, waiting to have enough drug substance to fill vials, and uh, the teams scaled very nicely. In Q2, the challenge we had internally was all about filling vials, and the complexity of Q3 has really moved to the, I would say, the back end of the supply chain, which is releasing product and shipping product. And the complexity has been around just the number of markets we, we, we have to serve. You know, beginning in the year, it was mostly shipping to CDC in the U.S. and Europe, and that was it. But then as we increase the number of countries to many dozens by now, the, the complexity is just increasing. And it's even further now that we are, you know, serving COVAX. We need to go country by country. So that's just the type of TV problems that, that we are experiencing right now. We have increased personnel. We have invested in digital to help the teams. So I really uh, expect this to be resolved, like we resolved, you know, the drug substance challenges in Q1 and the drug product challenges in Q2. 
the uh, 2022, in terms of drugs substantiates, we could still make up to $3 billion in terms of, of Mattarola. As, as you know, uh, that number was really uh, depending on the booster dose. And now that we're on the other side of that decision with a 50 microgram dose, we confirm we could make up to $3 billion if there was a need for it. Um, uh, the challenge uh, in 2022 is going to really be around, you know, product form, because as the market moves to an endemic market, you're going to need basically uh, vials to be able to go to uh, less number of doses per vial. Again, in the pandemic setting, as you know, we launched with 10 doses per vial, which we think was really adapted. In low-income countries, we even have more into vials now. But as we think about the endemic market and we're trying to serve pandemic and endemic at the same time, we just need to keep adding presentation uh, to be relevant to healthcare workers and healthcare systems uh, around the world. So drug substance will not be an issue. Uh, there's, of course, as I described, potential upside to those numbers. Uh, we still have quite a number of APAs being discussed uh, with countries around the world. Uh, you know, we don't know what will happen in terms of epidemiology. You know, is there a new variant coming? Uh, is it a variant where the current vaccine uh, is still helpful? Or do we need, as Stephen described, you know, a new uh, booster? Uh, there's, of course, a big question mark here that we're all following epidemiology literally on a daily basis. And then there's also the need for boosting people uh, around the world that have had non-mRNA vaccines. As everybody knows, there's a problem of waning immunity over time, so time is not our friend as people see the levels of antibody going down and as we have new variants like Delta or potentially others. But we should not uh, forget that most people around the planet have not had an mRNA vaccine injected in their body to date. And so we believe there's an important need to boost people uh, with mRNA vaccines. And as Paul you know, showed the real-world evidence, including the data from CDC and Switzerland, the more we get data and the more time is helping to see, we see a, a net differentiation uh, between products. And this doesn't got unnoticed by governments around the world who are working really hard to preventing hospitalization and death. Uh, and so uh, there's upside to that. Uh, again, it's a very, you know, unpredictable environment. You know, none of us has, has worked through a pandemic before, thankfully. Uh, but you'll be assured that we will keep scaling up manufacturing. We'll keep engaging with government so that we can maximize how we can help people and the revenue should follow from that. Thank you. Thank you, Sarin. Your next question is from Matthew Harrison with Morgan Stanley. Your line is open. Uh, great. Good morning. Thanks for taking the question. Uh, two for me this morning. So first, can we just spend a moment on, on myocarditis? Um, and I think that the overlying question here is, you know, why do you think the regulator is, is more concerned with your vaccine in, in younger age groups compared to Pfizer, which has obviously already been approved in, in younger age groups? And then uh, related to that, how much of an impact is this having on uptake and distribution of your vaccine, uh, given that we see Pfizer continue to highlight potential differences um, and, and bringing that to government's attention? And then secondly, on, on flu, can you just comment on, on how you're going to interpret these results? Obviously, we're just going to get tighter results, um, but I, I think it's your premise that you can achieve a much higher efficacy flu vaccine compared to traditional flu vaccines. So uh, do you think there's a, a clear correlation in titers to efficacy? 
and and what level of titers would demonstrate very high efficacy? Thanks. Um, thank you, Matthew. So, Stephen, I'll take I'll take try and take those questions. Um, so, so first, uh, look, I think it's most important to say that uh, what what we communicated in a desire to be maximally transparent last week was that the FDA, um, unlike other regulators, has asked for some more time uh, to review emerging recent data, and uh, that might take till January. Um, I think your question is how is that different vis-a-vis um, -vis, um, what happened with the Pfizer vaccine. I think the most important thing to recognize is that the Pfizer adolescent vaccine was authorized prior to any substantial discussion about myocarditis as, as a benefit uh, or as a risk. Um, in fact, the, the, the signal emerged a few weeks later, um, just before we made our filing. And I think a prudent approach um, there was to, uh, the, the VERPAC conducted, there was you know, ongoing discussions. Um, but what we've continued to see over the course of the um, over the last four or five months is that for both mRNA vaccines, there's a question of uh, whether there's an increased rate of myocarditis above background in 18 and 24-year-old males, a relatively small population, but an important one. Um, and I think it's in the face of those continuing emerging questions that the FDA is, is being diligent and, and, and appropriately conservative in their approach and making sure they have the time to review those. Um, and they have continued to come out uh, over time. And so I think principally what we're seeing here as a difference is a, is a function of timing, uh, which is that uh, the, prior, the other vaccine had been authorized prior to this concern and there has been continued uh, emerging data around that. We are very grateful for the, to the FDA uh, for that diligence. Um, I would note that the same information are available uh, to other regulators and, and as, um, as I said before, we are authorized for uh, for that population um, in, in internationally, uh, and fortunately, as Paul characterized, we have not seen an increased rate of myocarditis in 12 to 17-year-olds, and we think over time the, um, the, the substantial benefits of our vaccine um, uh, will will ultimately win out here. Um, and so we look forward to, uh, to continuing to work with the FDA on that, but that's my best version of what, um, what I think we heard from them last week. Um, the... Uh, the question about how we see that evolving over time. Um, so obviously internationally, we, uh, we are participating in that market. In the United States, adolescent vaccinations have substantially tailed off, um, as we all would note. Uh, and so the extent that there's an ongoing need in the United States for vaccination, it, it is a diminishing, uh, market for sure. And again, this is a primary series vaccine. Uh, and so we do hope that most people in the world will seroconvert and not need a primary series, uh, looking forward. Um, the, the question then of what is that endemic market going forward that is of greatest import? And I tried to summarize that in our view of the evolution of this virus and what that need will be. It is, it is, we believe in the future, a booster market. And it's a booster market targeted at those populations that are at higher risk of respiratory disease. Those populations tend to be older adults and immune compromised. Places where we think mRNA-1273 is demonstrating really remarkable efficacy, differentiated in perhaps, uh, but uh, public data, publicly reported data is, is really encouraging on that dimension. And I would note that is not a population that's associated to date with any of the vaccines that have an increased rate of myocarditis. And so the benefit risk there, we think, even swings more favorably uh, to 1273, but will allow data to continue to develop and ultimately um, drive this behavior. So we are quite um, 
quite incur encouraged by the performance of the vaccine in the population that we think is going to be most important in the years ahead. Um, the last question was on flu, uh, which is, um, what do we think about that data? Obviously, as you pointed to, uh, there are correlates of protection that have, uh, that have been used previously with AJI titers in influenza vaccine. We will be looking at that, um, as, as I'm sure everybody will, as well as other uh, responses in the immune system um, as we continue to try and identify the optimal dose. Um, I am, I'm, I'm not going to um, put out there a view of what I think our view of success will look like. I will just say that we have very high expectations for our platform. Now, we do believe that our uh, performance in older adults, including uh, with the COVID vaccine, but also more recently with the RSV uh, booster study in phase one, demonstrates that our platform does incredibly well in those at highest risk of these respiratory viral diseases. And so we're optimistic that we will continue to show strong performance, hopefully strongest performance in, in those populations. Um, but I won't give you a specific tighter number today. Yeah, and we just went to Stephen's point, Matthew. I think we should not forget the company strategy, which is around combination. Uh, we believe that combining flu and COVID boosters in a single dose and then adding RSV is the critical central part of our strategy. We think it has tremendous value for compliance, for protection. It has tremendous value in terms of convenience to the consumers. I do not believe that most people will want a flu shot and a COVID shot and a RSV shot every fall. Uh, and as we heard from the payer and healthcare worker, that's the value of the product. So, so we believe the combination is really a, a critical a success factor. Thank you. Next question is from Ted Patha with Piper Sander. Your line is open. Great. Thank you very much, and uh, congratulations on all the progress. Um, my question has to do with uh, the um, emerging orphan disease pipeline, and I've been really impressed by the progress that you guys are making there in these important um, patients, and I think the mRNA technology just uh, suits ideally here. So what do you see as sort of the plans over the next couple years? Kind of take us forward a little bit. Um, you know, what could this pipeline look like, and um, Maybe you can just give us a sense of where, where you think um, Moderna will be in the orphan disease um, setting in a couple of years. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. Um, I'll take, take that. So, um, so first, I think, you know, we're very excited about the programs that are already in the clinical uh, space, um, either already dosing patients or about to start. Um, and so I think the, the most important thing is looking forward to next year, um, the demonstration, we would hope, of proof of concept in that rare disease uh, modality. Um, as, as you know, we are dosing uh, quite a large num uh, number of folks in propionic acidemia, and we've been dosing in methylmalonic acidemia. And with the opening of the GSD-1A um, IND, we'd hope to be following a short order there. So all three of those are potentials for us to demonstrate um, the real proof that this, this technology can be used to correct uh, inborn errors of metabolism um, in, in these populations. I'll also note that there's a quite wide range of disease going down to as young as two years age in some of the methyl, uh, in some of the organic acidemias and off the older adults in some of the GSD1A programs. So we're going to be demonstrating quite a lot there. Um, Cleveland Ajar presents another opportunity for that proof of concept as well, as well as the PKU program um, when that moves forward, but those are still in preclinical, as I said. So the question is, what do we do on the back of that proof of concept from anyone or all of those programs? 
Um, what you've seen us do in, in respiratory vaccines and in vaccines generally is probably the best predictor of how we will respond, which is, as you know, there are a very, very large number of, of, of metabolic diseases that could be addressed through the liver through mRNA therapy. Um, you know, we have, we could list off large groups, but, you know, the urea cycle disorders, other organic acidemias, so many uh, beyond that, and even in moving into more um, broadly present metabolic diseases. So what we would do is we would define that systemic intracellular therapeutic modality as a core modality, just like we did with vaccines a couple years ago, and that would cause us to dramatically expand that pipeline. Now, I can assure you we're looking at those programs and research right now, uh, but we will we have held back on moving them into preclinical development and putting them on our pipeline until we saw seen the modality perform. So that is probably the most important thing for, for me looking at the, the rare and orphan disease space over the course of uh, the coming year um, is when do we cross that threshold and then ultimately when do we expand dramatically that pipeline of programs. That makes a lot of sense and I really appreciated seeing the new uh, pulmonary um, disease area. So thanks for all the updates. Thank you. We have a question from Mike Lee from Jeffries. Your line is open. Hi, good morning. Thanks for the questions. Uh, two questions. One is just trying to clarify uh, guidance. I think there's some confusion around guidance, so I would love to understand uh, some clarification. Uh, you lowered 2021 a little bit, I think by $5 billion, but raised 2022, 2022 by $5 billion. Is that a timing shift of deliveries, and how much of that is just option contracts um, as you think about 2022? Because you've talked about APAs as firm commitments. I'm just trying to understand how much are commitments versus acceptances and how to, how to think about those two. And then on flu, following up on the flu question, I think people are looking at labels and looking at fold increases and seroconversion rates of four to seven times and 50 to 60% conversion rates. Are those accurate numbers? Are those numbers we should be looking at and comparing to? Maybe you could just help us qualify that because I think that's what people are trying to do. Thank you so much. So good morning, Mike, Stefan. I'll take the first one and, and give the floor to Stephen. So I think you already highlighted some of, uh, of the drivers. So on 21, so there's two things I think that is driving uh, first is, of course, the lower volume. And the second one is, is price. Uh, as you know, we are working very hard with several governments to send products that they had bought for high-income countries like the U.S. to low-income countries this, this side of Christmas. And so if you think about just the U.S., the U.S., we say that publicly. When we announced our African Union partnership, the U.S., uh, decided to delay to Q2 the delivery of our December order. That volume is going to African Union at a low tier price, so you have an impact on the, the, the turnover just by doing the math of a lower price on the same volume right there. And some orders that are moving from December to January on the, on the supply volume side of things. So when you're on 222, where you have the increase of volume move from December to January, uh, that is one. We've signed new APAs since uh, the last numbers. And as I said, uh, some options have been exercised. One of them was a COVAX option that was exercised uh, at the end of Q3. Uh, that is now counted as a full APA because the center's firm commitment and some prepayment and so on. And so those are the dynamics that are, that are happening. 
The team also is uh, starting to spend a lot of time, the commercial team, on focusing on the fall of 22, because we think that's going to be an important moment. The mix and match, we think, is critical. That is now allowed in most places. In some countries, they even just mix and match, you know, uh, for a long time. But the U.S. market, which of course is important, is allowing mix and match. And as, you know, Paul just shared, we believe that as time will go, the data will show that what we believe is that we have the longest duration efficacy vaccine on the market. And today, if you look at, at data and market research, very few consumers in the U.S. know that. People that are listening to this call know that because you read papers on a daily basis. Very few people in the U.S. We believe there's an opportunity for us, you know, between now and let's say next summer, to make sure that people understand the facts, understand the real-world evidence, so that they can make an informed decision. And that includes the healthcare workers, the pharmacists, the doctors, the nurses, that include the consumers directly. Uh, and so this is why, as we're starting to sharpen our pencils and really spend a lot of time working towards the fall of 22, we believe that's another piece uh, that was not, if you go back to our previous numbers, we only di disclosed APAs and options of APAs. Uh, the commercial opportunities for the fall of 22, we think, uh, is going to be an important uh, vector to the 22 sales. Stephen, on floor? Sure. Um, so I'll try, and, I'll try and clarify that answer on, on zero conversion rates. So I, we, um, it is a phase one study. And so, I, you know, we are looking at a range of doses, and I, I, I um, have not got access to the data, so I'm not, I just don't, don't want to presuppose the specific answer yet. As soon as we have the data, we will provide our thorough interpretation of it. However, um, as you point out, um, generally zero conversion is defined as a fourfold rise in titers uh, above baseline, and we've done that in some of our other studies. Um, and we will be looking at that, the percentage of people who achieve that zero conversion. And of most important to me, we'll be looking at the consistency of that percentage across ages, in particular the older adults where you often don't achieve the type of the same level of immunogenicity, but we believe with our platform well. There are other endpoints as well in terms of zero protection defined as absolute titers. Again, greater than 40 is accepted. We will look how high that goes because that can also be reassuring. But I don't think right now we're ready to guide on a specific target that we will declare a success, other than looking again at that fourfold rise for measuring zero conversion across the range of ages that we'll be studying in the study. Todd, thank you. Thank you, Michael. Next question is from Gina Wang from Barclays. Your line is open. Thank you for taking my questions. I have two regarding the COVID vaccine. And the first question is the Given the supply restraints, uh, do you see in 100 microgram doses being used as 250 microgram doses? And then also any hesitance due to safety concerns? And we did see a few countries put a cautionary action on uh, a Moderna vaccine. And my second question is, in the U.S., um, if we do the math, you completed delivery of a 300 million doses, and then U.S. exercise total doses of 410 uh, for 2021, and then 90 million doses in first quarter 2022. So just wondering how much of the remaining 110 million doses in full Q21 will flow to uh, next year? Sure. I, I can try and take the first question, although I invite Paul as well. Um, uh, so um, 
I think in terms of, uh, you, you referenced some of the more recent communications that have happened from public health officials, for instance, in uh, the Nordics and elsewhere. Um, you know, I would note that those same communications, um, literally often the same documents, and include reference to the fact that there is uh, very strong efficacy uh, for the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. And in fact, some of those uh, Nordic country communications include reference to the fact that it looks to be potentially greater in terms of protection as emphasis for why the vaccine not only um, is, is still recommended in many of those jurisdictions, but ultimately um, provides very favorable benefit risk. And so we, we continue to believe that that whole picture of looking at the benefit um, and quantifying that benefit, which we think is substantial and larger than, than any risks co contemplated here, um, is really important. Uh, and we, again, look to those communications that, that clearly state that. Paul, anything you would add to that? Only, Stephen, that, you know, recently, I think last week, the WHO uh, gave updated guidance, uh, continuing to in endorse uh, the vaccines and mRNA-1273. And I think as they uh, are doing their analyses of these data sets, have said that they need to uh, think about potential uh, biases that occur in, in general practice, um, looking at the, the primary vaccination schedule, the, the difference in timing. Uh, we know that vaccines are used differently uh, sometimes, and that may account for these, but uh, I think clear standing behind uh, the, uh, the data. Uh, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, just as a, as a closing comment, I would just reference, we have entered in some of these markets into a very interesting phase of the pandemic, right, which is that uh, we are in the lower risk populations um, and we are uh, providing vaccination to them um, as, as, a, as appropriate. Um, but, you know, so as we do that, um, it's a, you know, we're looking at benefit risk in, in, um, in the most cautious and in increasingly cautious ways, and that's appropriate. Um, but as we look forward to next year and we start thinking about boosting, uh, and, and particular, the seasonal market of protecting those at our highest risk. I think that 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 calculus obviously changes pretty dramatically. Um, and so, I think we are in a period of time where um, where where we are again looking at the lowest risk populations. Um, and I think that um, that is a transient period of time um, ultimately because it is high risk populations that are of greatest concern looking forward from 2022. Yeah, maybe just to add just a bit of color, I've had a chance to speak with a couple of health ministers across the world in the last week or two. And I think people are very clear that the risk is low, that it's very manageable, as Paul said, and it's right in the male 18 to 24. Um, and those health ministers, what they care about, going back to the risk profile that Stephen just mentioned, they care about having a winter where they don't have hospitals exploding again. And this is driven by the 50 and above, 40 and above, where they know the vaccine, as, as Paul mentioned with the data from the U.S. or Switzerland or many other countries, that the 1273 vaccine seems to be the vaccine providing the longest protection of efficacy. And that's what they care about. And so I think as people are getting educated and looking at the data, they're just trying to look at the facts and figure out in a very practical way how do they keep their economies running, how they keep people out of hospitals, and very focused on the the high population. As you know, in many countries, the boosters are not approved in uh, in the younger population, uh, whereas they are uh, being really advertised and promoted in the older population so that people get boosted and don't get sick and hospitalized this winter. On the U.S. government, uh, Gina, we don't comment on, on volume. Uh, U.S. government is a private contract with the government, but indeed there are some shifts from Q4 to, to next year, both Q1 and Q2. 
Okay, thank you. Next question is from Corey Kasimov with JP Morgan. Your line is open. Hey, good morning, guys. Thank you for taking my questions. Two for me as well. So first of all, in terms of the 2022 APAs that you outlined, are the $17 billion worth of existing contracts constructed as, as firm commitments, or do countries have or do they, the contracts have optionality embedded in them wherein countries don't necessarily have to take the full amount depending on the evolution of the pandemic? And then my second question is, given um, your comments on the call about potentially moving into the endemic phase by the second half of next year, should we think about 2022 revenue as being weighted towards the first half of the year? Thank you. Thank you, Corey. So let me, let me take this apart. Uh, the APAs uh, do not have options. When we say 17 billion of APAs, those are firm orders, signed orders, and all our APAs have upfront payments. You know, David did a nice job walking you through the cash upfront we are receiving for those contracts. Uh, it, it's one of the ways that we are conducting our business. Uh, we want people to be very committed and to have a, a material uh, upfront of the total value of a deal when they sign. The options uh, components that we characterize as up to $3 billion as of today, those are true options, meaning people are reserving capacity. Uh, and sometimes it's for financing reasons, because, again, as I said, we do not do APAs without upfront. And one of the best examples that's totally public is COVAX. We've had to do a quarterly option with COVAX. As I said, they just exercised their Q2 option at the end of Q3. Uh, but Q3 2022 and Q4 2022, COVAX are still options. And it's mostly because of a funding issue. They don't have the cash. They get cash from their different funders, which are mostly governments and foundations, on a kind of a month-to-month uh, basis. And so uh, we did that to help COVAX and to do the right thing to help the planet. Uh, as usually, you know, we don't have to do options. We say if you want the vaccine, when you sign a contract and you pay an upfront. Uh, but with COVAX, we have to do so. We thought it was the right thing to do. Uh, and so we expect if they want their Q3 volume, that in Q1 they will exercise the options. Or oh, sorry, end of Q4 they'll exercise the options. And it will go like this. Uh, on the endemic uh, and the the the. the the ventilation of the sales over the year, I think it would be dangerous to assume at this stage one way or another in terms of the first half and second half because of volume and also pricing. Uh, as you get a sense, the COVAX, the uh, African Union, and some bilateral deals we have are lower prices, and David mentioned that, field pricing. And so there might be a, a large volume, but the price might be way lower than what the commercial market uh, could drive, uh, which we believe is going to be above what has been the pandemic price, again, because of volume. And so uh, we have some people stocking uh, ahead of when they need to inject in pharmacies. Uh, I, will, I will be cautioned that assuming Q1 is going to be lower than Q2 is, is a bit too early. Okay. Thank you. That's helpful. Thank you, Corey. Next question is from Jeff Misham from Bank of America. Your line is open. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks so much for taking the question. I just had one more in the flu program, maybe for, uh, for Stephen. You know, it's highly likely that you'll see an increase in antibody titers. I was just thinking for the combo study, though, with 1273, you know, what other factors 
do you need to address to de-risk that study? And just, I guess I'm trying to determine how to optimize the regimen by things like dose titration or even selecting the population by more urgent need for the COVID booster side of things. Thank you. Thank you for the question there. It's a great one. Um, so what we're, what we're going to be looking at in the combinations are actually the things that you just pointed to. Um, and so in particular, um, you know, we do believe the, the, the most of the value of respiratory vaccination um, in the near-term boosting will be in older adults, you know, 50-plus or 60-plus, depending upon how you want to look at it. Very similar to the RSV population, certainly for the flu population recommendations globally. Uh, and we think COVID moves that direction as well. And so as we look um, to the first part of the question, where do, we, where do we intend to optimize that ratio in immunogenicity? It really is towards those higher-risk populations um, that do need, we think, a respiratory booster every year. Um, when it comes to looking at the, um, you know, what are the, what are the combination of things that we're going to um, be doing in selecting that ratio and dose, obviously it's, it's mostly going to be immunogenicity and, and the tolerability profile. Um, fortunately, these vaccines have been, in, you know, very safe. Uh, to date in these older adult populations. You know, none of the concerns that we're having about myocarditis really exist in the 50-plus, 60-plus populations. Um, and so we feel very confident on the overall safety profile, but the question will be, where are we in optimizing the immunogenicity um, against endpoints that are pretty well validated now in COVID, uh, and where are we against the immunogenicity against endpoints that are also broadly accepted in influenza? Uh, we will be doing this for a range of different, you know, it's a, it's a uh, four strain seasonal strain vaccine, and so um, we'll want to make sure there's no interference between those, and that we're able to achieve you know, strong balanced immunity across the four flu strains plus the COVID vaccine. Um, I think uh, you know we have approximate targets based on the immunogenicity we saw from phase three and the immunogenicity we're seeing in the booster studies. But the open question is, are we going to need all of that for you know the COVID portion of our vaccine going forward? Um, and so we'll continue to follow over time, whether we see more durable protection, and therefore you, you might be able to uh, optimize further that dose um, if there was a reason to do so. Um, and then the second part is with the, the seasonal annual flu uh, component. We just want to understand, particularly in the older adult population, where flu vaccines have had less, you know, less, less clear efficacy every season uh, is maybe a way I'll say it. Um, and there is an opportunity for improvement by raising those titers. Um, we're going to want to look to whether or not we need to get those titers above um, the, what have been achieved by others. And I'll note that there's a precedent even for high-dose flu vaccines in that market that have been differentiated on price and grabbing market share. And so it could cause us to look in that 60-plus or 50-plus population at, at really indexing more to those flu antigens and making sure that we um, exceed or, or at least achieve that similar high degree of seroconversion there. So those are the factors that we'll look at around the, the, the 1073 program that we've announced. Uh, we're looking at a range of ratios. Um, fortunately, we have ex we're going to have experience. We already have experience in flu and COVID um, from our prior work, um, and it will be a, a demonstration, we hope, of the ability to combine vaccines. I will note, um, as a final comment, we have done combination respiratory vaccines in the past, including in adults with the 1653 program. And so we do have um, a, a basis for beginning to think about how we might combine those antigens going forward. But ultimately, we'll let the the 1073 study and the early clinical experiences there be confirmatory around this. Great. Thank you very much. We have a question from Joseph Stringer from Eden. Your line is open. Hi. Good morning. Thanks for taking our questions. Uh, two from us. Just curious on the um, 
the guidance for uh, the two billion guidance for uh, the U.S. fall 2022 um, booster market. Uh, can you help us understand what what um, assumptions are sort of built into that that number? Is that is that based on sort of you know your internal expectations around uh, a relative percentage of of individuals that would uh, of fully vaccinated individuals that would get a booster or um, just trying to handicap what, what the variance could be uh, around that. And then uh, for CMV, um, the, uh, can you give us a sense for the relative timelines for enrollment of that phase three trial and when we could see the initial data from that? Thank you. So on the fall of 22, so the commercial team uh, has spent quite a lot of time in you know, modeling different assumptions in terms of, you know, volume of people who want a booster, you know, market share, and, of course, pricing. Uh, I cannot comment further for competitive reason right now, uh, especially on the pricing piece, but we will do that uh, in due time. But, indeed, I mean, it's typical, you know, commercial analysis that the team that has done that many times before uh, in other companies uh, have run through, through the last few months. Great. Um, and on the enrollment of CMV, thank you for the question. So we're um, the answer from our target perspective is as fast as we can, uh, because we ultimately think there's just such a huge unmet need here, and we're excited to 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 get this study going. Um, there are some caveats that I should put around that, um, which is it probably won't be as fast as we did COVID, which was you know obviously in a couple of months, um, because we are we are targeting a population at high risk of of disease, and in this case, we're looking for women mo- women of childbearing age. Um, who are exposed to seroconversion of COVID-19, you know, with, with sorry, with CMV. Um, and that is often those that are exposed to children because that's the primary vector for those infections. Um, and so we want to make sure that we get the right population. Um, and that matters because this is a case-driven study. You know, as we're kind of familiar with based on COVID-19, it's the number of cases that we achieve that will ultimately dictate those interim analyses that we're looking for um, in, the, in the time ahead. Um, and so it makes sense to try and enrich for the at-risk population. So you might see a slower enrollment curve, um, or it might go really fast. We're going to work as hard as we can to go really fast. But the most important thing is that we need to be enrolling those that are at highest risk, because we think that will ultimately generate the cases that accelerates the interim readout. Um, we won't, we, because it is an interim readout that's driven on cases, I can't predict when that will happen. What I can do is I can try and enrich for those cases in the way I just described. Great. Thanks for taking my question. Next question is from Emmanuel Papadakis from Deutsche Bank, Kilano Silverman. Emmanuel Papadakis, Kilano Silverman. We can go to the next question, operator. Okay. And next is from Manny Foruhar, SVB Leewink. Kilano Silverman. Hey guys, thanks for taking the questions. A um, uh, couple quick ones. Um, can you give us a sense of uh, when we might see, if any, uh, the impact of pricing shift to increase deliveries to low and middle income countries that Stefan mentioned? Um, is that something that you know we start to see a little bit of early next year? Is that more of a four Q phenomenon um, in terms of the budgetary timing and sort of quarterly contract that Stefan talked about? Um, secondarily, I, I have a few small and piggy tack questions on the numbers. 
Um, you on slide 15, the 6.7 billion in deposits. That was really all for APAs for 21 or 22, or does some of that apply to APAs for delivery for contracts for 2023? Um, thirdly, you, your capex guide is a little lower than it was last Q. Is that is that 50 to 150 million that you took out of that? Is that absolute savings, or is that just going to get pushed into next year um, as some of the contract revenues were? Um, and then finally, a little more substantive of a question: um, How 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 much um, perspective can you give us on you're able to potentially compete for share on contracting in EU. Um, your competitor Pfizer Biontech has locked in pretty large contracts on volume for the next two years. Um, is there's an opportunity for you guys to start capturing more share, the turn to relevance in the EU. Um, and last and finally, um, we talked on the last quarter uh, about potentially access to the China market where you guys are essentially non existent at this point. Um, and you guys mentioned going there via JV. Um, can you give us an update on status of your ability to access that market, discussion of a JV to compete with Biontech Foson? Um, sorry for the barrage of questions, um, and thanks for taking our questions. Good. So I'll take a few, and, and, and David, uh, if you can take sure. the financials, that would be great. Yeah. So on Q4, uh, we already you know our shipping COVAX products, uh, and the African Union will be in December, as we communicated in the press release. Um, and it's going to be a big ramp into, into next year, obviously. Uh, in terms of European share, which was one of your questions, so if you look at it, there's a few things. First, in Europe, if you remember, we had a late and slow launch in Europe because we had no manufacturing capacity in Europe. If you recall, when we started the pandemic, we had Norwood that we converted and we were not allowed to export, so we serve the U.S. market. So Lonza came online uh, a bit later than Norwood because we had nothing in Lonza until they started, you know, sometime in the summer to just get machines and, and, and get the facility ready. And so, indeed, in, in Europe, we have a lesser share than we have in uh, the U.S., uh, except, for example, for Switzerland, like, uh, like you saw earlier. And so as the country gets more and more of an understanding, uh, first, that mRNA vaccines are superior. Uh, the, the, the other vaccines that are not mRNA are not really used anymore. Uh, as my understanding, they are mostly given through, through COVAX. I think we have an interesting opportunity because, as I just shared, you know, as you take, you talk to healthcare uh, leaders, like uh, health ministers, as you get more and more of the data that Paul shared, there's a better and better understanding that the two mRNA vaccines are not the same. And so, again, as we look into 2022, we already have a contract with Europe for 2022, uh, and we are, we are discussing also uh, with country by country on the data and on saying the benefit of the Moderna vaccine uh, versus the other one. Uh, and then the other question that's going to stay in Europe, which is today, uh, contracts are done at the European level because this was organized and agreed by Europe because of a pandemic. The big question that's going to be out there is when do countries start to be buying by themselves uh, because they have to make guesses of supply when they set up the 21 and the 22 agreements. That might not meet the needs that they have as they understand better the different profiles of a vaccine. And so I think it's going to be quite interesting to see the, the share opportunity that we have in Europe. Also, as we build our teams, you remember we had no infrastructure in Europe, like zero, not one modern employee in commercial. You know, we have now teams, you know, in several countries in Europe, you know, in the UK, in Spain, in France, in Germany, 
building the Ethereum team as we speak. So I think that will also help because we'll get feet on the ground to be able to get the message that, that, that of the, of the real world evidence data. David, do you want to take a couple of financial sure. questions? Yeah. So in terms of the deposits of 6.7 billion we have, uh, in hand, I would just say the preponderance of those deposits are for, uh, deliveries either in 21 and in 22. Um, there may be some small amounts in 23, but it's, uh, it's pretty early in terms of contracting there. Uh, secondly, in terms of CapEx, uh, I think the answer is yes. You can expect, as I said, we're going to see, uh, you know, a notable increase in our CapEx next year. Um, but, but generally in terms of the reduction this year, it's a combination of things moving into the first quarter of next year and also we're running in some cases at or below the estimated, um, you know, investment requirements. So it's a combination of those two. Great. And on, um, and on, chi- and on potential China JV, I know you guys have mentioned that in the last call. I don't know if there's been any progress. Yeah, so nothing to, to announce today, but, uh, we do know a lot of people in China. <laughs> Great. Thanks for taking the questions. Um, I'll let you guys check on, uh, check on Emmanuel. Okay. Thank you. There are no further questions at this time. I would now like to turn the call offense back to Mr. Stefan Donsol. Well, thank you very much, everybody, for joining us. And if you have any further questions, well, you know where to reach Lavina and the team. Have a great day. Bye. This concludes today's conference call. Thank you for joining. You may now disconnect.